You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Mark, if you were going to play The Doors this morning, wouldn't you go with Riders on the Storm? Oh, wouldn't what's that wrong be more? with this song? I love this song. I mean, it's a decent song. Whoa. Decent. I don't think it's one of the better Doors songs. Did you go through a Doors phase? Well, I mean, I go through Doors every day. That, okay. Kevin. Mark, that's, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go through a Doors phase, Mark? Yes. Um, I guess so. A guy that probably has gone through a few doors phases in his time, Jim Irsay. Kevin, Jim Irsay made uh, pretty big news. What was it? I'm trying to think of when the exact timeline was when he came out and said that he believed that there was enough evidence um, to have Daniel Snyder removed as the owner of the Washington Commanders. And that kind of created a firestorm around the league. And at that time, I recall saying... It's like early October. Yeah, and it was just before the two teams were set to play, I believe, right? And I recall thinking that it seemed... You know, Jim Irsay, Daniel Snyder, there had been reports that Daniel Snyder, the owner of the Washington Commanders, had told people that he had the goods, essentially, on all the other owners. And, like, basically, look, if you're if you're wanting to condemn me for anything like tread lightly because i've hired investigators and i've got the goods on everybody and of course that's kind of been refuted since but i felt like at the time when jim ursay was the one that was the most outspoken in regards to speaking on behalf of the other owners or at least appearing to speak on behalf of the other owners that ursay was the guy that that made the most sense about because jim ursay's transgressions have been very transparent and as a result of that, Ursay seemingly was the one owner that was like, you want to come after me, come after me. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an open book. Everybody knows, have I had my challenges? Sure, but everyone knows them. So have at. So it's almost like the other owners were like, if we've got to have somebody speak up, well, you know, so-and-so can't speak up because he's a little worried that they'll find out about this or so-and-so. Well, you know, Jim's the guy. I mean, there, there's, he's got nothing to hide. You know, hey, hey, Mikey, you know, you do it. And so Ursay came out with those comments. Now, my question for you, Kevin Bowen, on this Thursday morning is the following. Is Jim Ursay, after yesterday's comments, starting to walk back a little bit? Or is that me reading into it too much? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably go with the latter, Jake. I, I, I need to double back and look at those comments from early October. I felt like what stood out about those comments were... You were not used at all to an owner saying that about a fellow owner, but I felt like Ursay had the caveat. It wasn't the number one headline that people always gravitated towards back then, but I thought he had the caveat even with those comments of like, if these things are true, then we need to look into voting him out of the league. I felt like he he said that. Um, whereas I guess yesterday... At the league meetings, it was more of a, we need to hear from Daniel Snyder, we need to hear from the parties involved, those sorts of things. So I maybe he wasn't as demonstrative yesterday in a direct kind of attack on Daniel Snyder like he was a couple months ago, but I think it just kind of got lost in the shuffle of when he initially made those comments, people were in such shock of an owner saying that about another owner, they also missed a little bit of the he's kind of covering his ass and saying if these are true then we need to 
look into voting him out or vote him out. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, maybe legally, maybe some people kind of got to him or like, hey, innocent until proven guilty. Daniel Snyder should have his chance to make public comments and stand up in front of ownership and all of that. But I, I, I don't think he walked it back too, too much. Maybe just not as demonstrative as he was a couple months ago. Uh, Ursay had said in October, quote, there is merit to removing Snyder as an owner. Quote, you have to protect the shield to protect the league, and I don't like to see the shield damaged. And right now, the shield is taking some damage from all of this. Um, Didn't he mention in there, though, like, if these things are true? I, I felt like that was part of those statements. Again, it wasn't the number one headline, but I, I, I felt like he said that at some point. That's in there. fair. Yeah, I mean, yesterday's comments, the tone of them were definitely much more on the side of, we need to hear from Daniel Snyder. Ursay said there are potentially 24 votes to remove Snyder as co-owner of the Commanders. Um, and I think you're right. He said there is merit to removing so perhaps now he is simply being more explanatory. Yeah, or just like a little bit less, you know, screaming. Do you think, though, the Colts franchise is, and this is really Freudian of me, so, you know, I, I apologize for that, but the Colts franchise is in a different state than it was in early October. Things are a little more unstable within his own franchise in terms of the coach, their position, their where their season's headed, maybe even their general manager. Does that subconsciously cause Ursay to step back a little bit in his comments? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, yeah, boy, quite a lot of you know what's happened since those comments. Yeah. Fired Frank Reich, hired Jeff Saturday, and quarterback shuffle, and... Colts are 4-8-1. I think when he made those comments, they might have even been above 500 at that point. So, yeah, maybe there is some of that that comes with those comments. Um, and again, I don't know. Maybe some other owners have reached out to him. Maybe the league has reached out to him and say, we appreciate your candor. We appreciate you kind of being the lone wolf in a lot of this. But at the same time, the element of innocent until proven guilty has to play out. And we need to hear from Daniel Snyder before, you know, 24 votes and all of those things unfold. Doesn't it kind of feel inevitable, though, at this point that Daniel Snyder's out? <laughs> Am I wrong? Well, if Washington fans got their wish. Yeah. Uh, do they have fans still? Uh, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I mean, I'm, remember I'm when those facetious. comments happened? You know, I went on Washington radio a few times during that week and they were like, we love your owner so much. We want to put him in our ring of honor. <laughs> yeah. Can he buy the Washington Commanders and all of this? And obviously you've had you know Daniel Snyder come out and say that, you know, they're potentially looking into a sale of the Commanders, and that's certainly a much, much different tone than what he was saying back when those Ursay comments played out. It'll be interesting to see. I, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be overly upset if Daniel Snyder's removed. Let's put it that way, right? Anything you're you care about these final four games, Jake? Outside of draft Boy. position for the Colts, you know, I, I mentioned earlier in the week. I do think this is a massive four game stretch for Bernard Ryman. If he can be your left tackle of the future, ironically enough, you're going to see a guy that you could have drafted as your left tackle of the future on Saturday. It was either going to be Quiddy Pay or Christian Darisau. 
as that left tackle uh, or as that pick for the Colts a couple of drafts ago. Um, Colts didn't feel like Darisau would have met the kind of standard that they created in their offensive line room. Thought Quiddy Pay had a little bit higher character. Went with Quiddy Pay over Darisau, and you know Pay's had some moments. Of course, health has been an issue for him, uh, but Darisau's been outstanding for Minnesota as their left tackle. But I, I would say that's the one that I'm kind of watching. If Ryman can be that guy, would be absolutely vital for you and crossing off a massive position of need moving forward. The thing to me that is the most interesting about Bernard Ryman, Kevin, is, you know, as we talked about the other day, and I can't recall, you know, Chap would be a better person probably to answer this because I don't recall this. I think Tarek Glenn was basically put in at left tackle right away and was a good player right away. Anthony Costanzo took time. I mean, you know, I remember... Wasn't Glenn a guard that first year and that, then? That might even be the case. I, yeah. I feel like I heard the story like Howard Mudd flying out there and saying, we're drafting Peyton Manning and you're going to be the blindside guy for him. And Tark was like, whoa. That that may be right, yeah. Um, I thought I thought that was the story. I could be wrong. Th- no, that, that it, like I said, I, I can't recall to be honest with you. But I know that, you know, Anthony Costanzo. They just threw him into the fire. And, and here's the thing. I remember when Costanzo was first drafted, and that was the year. Costanzo's rookie year was the Curtis Painter year, correct? Yeah, 2011. Uh huh. And I was doing an afternoon show with Derek, and we had to do, we had already, we were early an hour. That might have been the first year we were doing a radio show together. And they wanted us, they had already sold for a Colts player show on Tuesdays, I think it was. <laughs> And the Colts are like 0-10. It's like, well, who are we going to get to come out to do this? And Costanzo was a rookie and and a really nice guy. And he did it probably out of charity like three or four times for us. But he was kind of a doughy, like just a big goofy guy. And doughy, went, that's how they describe me. Really? I wouldn't list you as doughy at all. Well, the dad bod's starting to grow. <laughs> I always think of Luka Doncic is a little doughy. He's doughy, for sure. He looks like he likes pizza and if beer. You, if, if you poke him, he goes, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to hang out with him post-game. Um, but Costanzo, you know, he went down to Florida, like to IMG, and lived there in the offseason for like, I don't know about lived there, but trained there for a couple of years. And, and he just transformed his body, but he was also infatuated and committed and dedicated towards learning the geometry of learning the position beyond the level that he played at Boston College. And it took probably two years before he became the player that I think was underappreciated during his time here. All of that to say with Bernard Ryman, like, are we accelerating it and making judgment? Are we getting into, is it like the quarterback position where you've got 16 games, 18 games, 20 games to prove what you can do, and if not, you're you're thrown out? When in reality, it takes 30 before a guy really gets a feel for it. I, you know, that would be my, my question. Is it too early either way to even make any sort of a decision on Bernard Ryan? Yeah, that's that's a question that deserves to be asked too, Jake. And I think the Costanzo Ryman entrance to the NFL, very different. Costanzo, first-round pick. I think he was a, a – I feel like he was a three-year starter at Boston College, maybe even a four-year starter. Ryman has only played left tackle for two seasons right. and did it at Central Michigan. Um, so and wasn't drafted obviously in the first round was a third round pick but um, there are a couple other storylines we can get to here over the final four weeks I mean I get that again 
98% of the fan base only cares about draft order and for good reason, but I do think there are some other things to watch here as the Colts get to the final quarter of the season. We'll get back into some Pacers chatter as well. Again, Scott Agnes going to join us at 8.30. Ross Tucker at 9 o'clock. He's on the national radio call this weekend for Colts and Vikings, so we'll get a little bit of a uh, bigger picture view from the Colts. You've seen Ross fill in for Dan Patrick before. Uh, always a good listen, so By the we'll way, enjoy I, that. Adam Meadows combo. was the left tackle, Glenn's rookie year. You are correct. Yeah, Daniel's saying that Tark held out, and that might have contributed to him starting at guard. Does that sound right to you? That may be right. Again, I, I apologize. He was uh, he was on the right side along with Tony Manders. They had a decent line. Uh, and Adam Meadows was an underrated player at left tackle, but a little undersized. Boy, what a great move by Howard Mudd. Switching Glenn over there. Yeah, I'd say, right? Gosh. You talk about like under-the-radar moves of that era being so successful. Uh, that is certainly near the top of the list. All right, 8 o'clock hour coming up. Uh, what's it looking like out there? Semi-overcast? Can you see Riley Towers? I can, actually, it's yeah. First time. <laughs> They're yeah. still there, right? <laughs> not as like dreary and ugly as it's been, but certainly not sun splash, as Jake would say, sitting up in turn three um, like it was earlier in the week and really hasn't been at all uh, for the past few weeks. Nice work by Mark to play the Prince since it is the land of purple where the Colts will be headed this weekend up to the Twin Cities, taking on the Minnesota Vikings on Saturday. Joining us now on the Payless Slickers Hotline, he is the host of the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. You can, of course, always find him on social media at Ross Tucker NFL, and he will be part of the Westwood One radio broadcast providing analysis for the Colts and the Vikings coming up on Saturday. Ross Tucker joins us on the program. Ross, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning. Thank you guys so much for having me. Hey, let's begin with this. I, You know, I'm going to start actually, even though we're in Indianapolis, I'm going to start you with a Minneapolis or a Vikings question. Uh, feels to me, and the NFL is cyclical, I realize that, but I felt like a month ago, perhaps, maybe after that Buffalo game in particular, that Minnesota was one that it's like, man, nobody's talking about the Vikings, but this looks like a team that is really going to be poised to perhaps make a deep run. But it felt like they've scaled back a little bit here. I don't know if that's a health issue or just the way they're playing, but am I off base in saying that, that Minnesota seems to come back down to earth a little bit? You know, I, I think there's a lot of people that kind of thought all along that they weren't really as good as their as their record indicates. Now, I think especially after that Buffalo win, and you see their skill on offense, right? I mean, Justin Jefferson might be the best receiver in the league. Adam Thielen's a heck of a number two. They got Hawkinson at tight end now. Dalvin Cook's a stud running back. Kirk Cousins, nobody ever, you know, seems to love him. He just plays like a top-12 quarterback, you know? I mean, everybody's always like, yeah, it's Kirk Cousins, but he just plays well. Um, but if you look at it, guys, it's kind of wild. They're 9-0 and in one-score games. 9-0. and They got blown out by the Eagles, blown out by the Cowboys, and they lost by two scores to the Lions last week. Their defense is... Very poor. I mean, you're talking about, I think it's five straight games where they've given up over 400 yards. Four of those five, they gave up over 300 yards passing. 
The only game they didn't was that Cowboys game, and that's because Dak got pulled like in the third quarter because they were winning by so much. So they absolutely have the weaponry on offense, but their defense has been really bad. It's interesting because there's a great chance they'll be the two seed, but they're not one of the three teams in the NFC that I can envision going to the Super Bowl. Yeah, and lately they've really struggled running the football too with Dalvin Cook. Again, Ross Tucker, former NFL offensive lineman, host of the Ross Tucker Podcast. You can check him out on social media at Ross Tucker NFL. Great listen. You've probably heard him filling in for Dan Patrick or as a guest with Dan Patrick. Uh, we appreciate the time this morning. I guess on the flip side of that, Ross, 4-8-1 uh, Indianapolis Colts. Do you think that's an accurate depiction of what you've seen from the Colts this season? Their record? Yeah. Do you think they, they, they look like a team that's you know one of the bottom feeders in the NFL? Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know. It's weird. You know, I, I remember the Chiefs game. You know, the, the thing that I guess is frustrating for me, and I'm sure you guys talk about it, and I don't know how you feel about it, I, I felt like they benched Matt Ryan too early. I, I would love to see a scenario, and obviously this can never happen, but I would have loved to have seen how the season would have unfolded if – based on all accounts that I had heard, if the owner hadn't forced Frank Wright to bench Matt Ryan, and not even for Nick Foles, but for Ellinger, who clearly wasn't ready to play, you know, I'm, I don't know. I, I think there's a decent chance maybe they win one of those two games. I, Ross, I, 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 not to cut you off, man, I, I, I said the exact same thing this week. I got to thinking about it. I'm like, wait a minute. That literally was like somebody jumping over the center console and just grabbing a hold of the steering wheel and jerking it into a lane that nobody saw coming. And now all of a sudden you're in a traffic jam and you go, what in the hell just happened? Uh, Well, let's think about this, right? Let's just think about this logically for a second. And I don't know Mr. Ursay at all, but let's go through the logic here of the owner dictating to the successful head coach that he needs to bench the starter and put in the third string young guy. Okay. That doesn't work. So the next week, presumably the same owner dictates that the offensive coordinator needs to be fired. Okay. Not sure. I really understand that after you just change the quarterback after one week, but okay. So the head coach complies and does that. Then the next week, the same owner who made the head coach do things the two prior weeks fires the head coach, installs a former offensive lineman who's in the media, who's not me, by the way. I probably would have done it. Why didn't I get a call? Um, (laughs) But in the media, installs him and allows him to put Matt Ryan back in as the quarterback. So whether you agree or disagree with any of the moves that the Colts have made, it's really hard to argue that the owner is being logical or making any sense with the decisions that he's making. You you just can't. I mean, there's no way as I just walked you through the steps, that there's any way that that makes any sort of sense. Do you believe 
Ross, that that particular perception can impede Indianapolis from getting the best coaching candidate that they can with this vacancy that will open up at the end of the year? Yes, I do. I believe that if you are a hot candidate, and listen, you know, I do a lot of stuff for the Eagles. They're, both their coordinators are absolute studs. I mean, their whole team is just ridiculous. That was actually a really good performance by the Colts against the Eagles to almost beat them because they they've murdered everybody since then. Um, if you have options, are you going to go to the team where the owner seems um, logical? Um, or are you going to go to the team where it appears as if the owner is trying to phrase this the right way, guys? Um, I guess emotional and or irrational at best. I, I don't. That's not where I want to go. I don't want to go somewhere where, first of all, they don't have a quarterback, and secondly, the. Owner is emotional and irrational at best. At best. Yeah, and it's not like you're going to sit there with the number one or two overall pick either to potentially find that quarterback in all likelihood. Um, so some big questions facing the Colts at the end of the year. Again, Ross Tucker is with us. He'll be on the call. Color analyst for Westwood One coming up on Saturday. Colts and Vikings. I'm curious this, Ross, and I guess I'm – kind of going in a positive direction but you know here locally there's one position group for the Colts that really stands out as a strength and I'm curious if you have noticed that as well like if you were going to kind of pinpoint one position group for the Colts that oh yeah that is a really really good group they've played well this season there's some talent there what would you point to D-line yeah I was going to say defensive I'm really tackle specifically. D line. I mean, th- those guys. Uh, Ngakwe's done some good things. DeForest Buckner, I love that guy. And I'll tell you what, this Grover Stewart. I feel like I didn't know that much about him. He's good. Really I mean, good. They, they 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 did a really nice job against the Eagles offensively. I, I was impressed by the, the Colts defense in general and the D-line in particular. And then honestly, like, with the with the linebackers, when they get Leonard back, and then the secondary, I don't remember how long Gilmore's uh, contract is, but with the way Rodgers has played and Kenny Moore, and, I mean, it's just a shame. It's really a shame because the AFC South was extremely winnable this year. And, and I think talent-wise, the Colts probably have the best team and probably should have won that division. A two-year deal for Gilmore. But, yeah, to Ross's point, Jake, as we've said all along, the defense has played January-like. The offense, not so much. Ross Tucker is our guest, by the way, on the Payless Sickers Hotline. Again, on Twitter, you can find him at Ross Tucker NFL. He will be on the call this weekend for the Colts and Vikings. Ross, I want to circle back to, uh, as you were talking about, because I think it's fascinating. And I think that when you're talking about perceptions of Indianapolis, you know, we live in an echo chamber here, right? I mean, we're in Indianapolis, so it's hard to know what, what the outside perspective is on them. I'm curious, from Chris Ballard's standpoint, 
and none of us know whether or not Chris Ballard even wants to maintain at his position with kind of the chaos around him. But do the Colts are they in a position now where they have to? I mean, we're 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 looking at like year seven of the Ballard era, and he has yet to draft the build around quarterback and continues to go with kind of band-aid 38 year old guy one to one you know hell Aaron Rodgers is he next Tom Brady is he next do they have to draft a quarterback this year well I think as soon as you say have to anything you're looking at the wrong way um I think that would be ideal certainly if they were able to get a young quarterback that they could build around but I'd also say, in fairness to Ballard, they've had a really a really pretty good team, right? And I think they wanted to make sure they had a quarterback that could help them have success. And Rivers got him to the playoffs. And, you know, Wentz should have gotten him to the playoffs last year. And so they should have been teams that were in the mix. And even Rivers played well in that playoff game at Buffalo. I mean, they almost won that game. So... I understand why he did what he did. Plus, it's kind of a, it's like a, I don't know if it's a secret, but these GMs know that if you, if you draft a quarterback in the first round, if he's not good, you're done. So, whereas if you get these Band-Aid guys, you can get a different Band-Aid guy the next year. You call it a Band-Aid guy. You get a different guy the next year and give it a shot that way. Whereas, if you draft the quarterback in the first round and he's not good, you're fired. Yeah, that's so, where the I, I said earlier, that's where the clock starts ticking on you, right? Like when you draft a first or, you know, the quote unquote franchise quarterback as a GM, your tenure starts and you are on the clock starting then. A thousand percent. Again, Ross Tucker is with us here. You will hear him. Westwood won the national call coming up this weekend. He also is the host of the Ross Tucker podcast, and you can check him out on social media at Ross Tucker NFL. Uh, the Colts have seen some pretty good wideouts this week, this year. Ross, I would think Justin Jefferson uh, might be at the top of that list. What has made him really have one of the best starts to an NFL career of any wideout in league history? Yeah, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I mean, he's just so good. You know, he's faster, I think, than people thought he would be um, and more explosive. There was some concern at LSU that he was just a slot guy, but he's obviously shown he's much more uh, of an outside guy than people realize. His catch radius is awesome. His contested catch ability is awesome. He's a really good route runner. I mean, he's he's just fantastic. They move him around a lot, right? They do. And it's wild, by the way, because, um, you know, I mentioned I do Eagles preseason on television. I do their pregame on the radio. And they took Jalen Rager one spot ahead of him, hmm. who's now like the number five receiver for the Vikings. And it's, all people talked about for a long time in Philly the last couple years. Thankfully, now they got another couple good receivers that they had to trade for, A.J. Brown, and they have Devontae Smith, but he's he's fantastic. Jefferson is, I, I think he's the best receiver in the NFL. I think you can make an argument for Devontae Adams as well, maybe even Tyree Kill, but Jefferson is, he's awesome. Ross, give me a team or two 
that Philly's probably the easy answer here just because, as you'd mentioned, they're winning so convincingly. But if you had to step it back a little bit, give me a team or two heading into the home stretch here that has the ability to win with the highest number of different ways. They might be able to beat you in a defensive slugout. They might be able to beat you in an air game. They might be able to beat you in a ground game. You know, what what team or two are the most versatile in the ways that they can win a football game? Yeah, I think it's probably the uh I think it's probably off the top of my head the um the three teams I can see going to the Super Bowl from the NFC. You know, because the Cowboys, Dak can have a big night if you need him to, but they also have an awesome defense that can make plays, and they also can run the ball very well. I mean, they've had over 100 yards rushing Pollard and Zeke every game since week four, and I think the Niners fit that mold as well based on what we've seen from Purdy. Their defense is awesome. They can obviously run it very well, and Purdy's been impressive. So those three, in the AFC, it's really only the Bengals. You know, I, I, don't, I don't look at the, the, uh, the Eagle, I'm sorry, the Chiefs or the Bills as being able to win in a lot of different ways. I mean, I feel like the Bills and the Chiefs kind of need Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes to be Superman to win. I, hey, it's it's all coming together for Cincy at the right time, isn't it? In terms of their health and just being on the same page. I don't know that people have talked about it, but the last three weeks to a month, it's like, whoa, here come the Bengals, right? Well, number one, their O-line has gotten so much better over the course of the year. So much better. Number two, their, um, their defense is really good. Like that guy should be a head coach, Lou Anarumo, the D coordinator for the for the Bengals. He is a stud because they don't have like a lot of big name guys on that defense, but they are really good, and they have been the last couple of years. I think Anarumo should be a head coach. Ross, before we let you go, I'm uh, what are we? A little over a week out from Christmas, uh, per usual. I'm in scramble mode from a gift <laughs> standpoint, and. Uh, word on the street is you got a holiday gift idea? Absolutely. We're 10 days away. You got to go to myfrontpagestory.com. My buddy started the business. It's, it's genius, actually. Because you just talk to a writer or you fill out a couple questions in an email, and they write the most unbelievable story about your wife or your mom or whoever you don't have a gift for yet. And it's amazing. It looks like it's on the front page of the newspaper. It's um, pictures of her. It's a great story. And the cool thing, the two cool things about it, guys, when you give it to somebody and they're opening it, they'll be like, wait, what is this? To be able to say to like your mom or your wife, I want to do something special for you. So I had a story written about you. Like that just sounds like who gets a story written about somebody? It sounds awesome. And then when they actually read the quotes and it's like, I just never thank her enough for all the little things she does. They will cry. Like, your wife, your mom, she will cry. You will win. Trust me, myfrontpagestory.com. I know a lot of you haven't gotten anything yet. This is the gift. And, by the way, they have it hanging up in their house forever. So it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Myfrontpagestory.com. How about the former offensive lineman going a little tearjerker there (laughs) on the gift idea? That might be the upset of the morning, Ross. 
You love it, yeah, dude. I, I'm a sense. I'm a big. I'm a big softy. I'm sen- sentimental, man. I love. I love gifts like that. Don't get her some other stuff she doesn't really need, or some stupid material thing. Get her something that'll actually that sh- that she'll really appreciate for a long time. Yeah, the candle for the thirteenth year in a row. Probably not the no, route that I should go with. There. Hey, Ross. Before we let you go, I, I, I want to make sure that this is accurate. Did you go to the same high school as Taylor Swift? Yeah, well, she didn't go to high school there. She left when she was 15. But, yes, she is from Wyoming, Pennsylvania. It's about an hour west of Philadelphia. Um, Alex Anzalone starts at linebacker for the Lions. Chad Henney plays for the Chiefs. And there, I'm telling you, there was like a six-year period where I was the most famous person from Wyoming. <laughs> but um, <laughs> last, time, last time I saw her parents... Um, I told her mom, I said, you know, from 2001 to like 2008, <laughs> I was the most famous person from my missing. <laughs> and her mom, her mom said to me, well, you know, just keep working, Ross. I, like, no, I think it's over. I think I lost. That's right. Like, she's kind of the most famous person in the world, I think. I don't, about, I don't know. I, you're I, the like, most famous person to in the whole world. Who's more famous than her? I don't even know if anybody is. Well, you're wow. the most famous to stay until you were 18. How's that? <laughs> I'll take it. I'll All take right. It. Fair enough. Ross, have a great call on Saturday. Again, host the Ross Tucker podcast. Check him out on social media at Ross Tucker NFL. Great stuff, Ross. Thank you. See you guys. Pacers of the season sweep over the Warriors last night. Was it 125, 119? Does that sound right for the that final? That is correct. Tyrese Halliburton with 29, Benedict Mathurin with 24, Miles Turner with 21. Yeah, Steph Curry exiting late third quarter there. Benedict Mathurin, a huge run to end the third, or I should say late in that quarter as well. Um, and the Pacers are able to bounce back. They really have not had many long losing stretches this season, um, so they continue to be pretty resilient in that area. To talk a little bit more about the Pacers, Scott Agnes from Fieldhouse Files joins us scott it was the rare good first quarter for indiana and while there was some great back and forth of course and golden state made a run in the third quarter you were reminded last night of like wow when this team actually gets off to a good start they typically win those games yeah and a spectacular than second quarter 47 points uh you know one of their best quarters of the year easily and that really propelled them to the win so early, and then they were able to hold them off. I thought that kind of became that story in that, um, yeah, they, they had that nice little run to end the first quarter, carried it into the second, and then never relinquished the lead. And so for a young team, I thought that was impressive. Scott, in terms of the Pacers' starts or their ability to score in bunches in quarters, at times it is kind of feast or famine. You look no further than last night versus, say, Miami. Is that more about the way that they are being played by the opponent and the pace that the opponent is setting or something that they are trying to do in some games that just, like, shots aren't falling or whatever it may be, as elementary as that may sound? Yeah, as far as the poor start, I think it's a lot of just missing shots and and starting slowly. I don't know if it's a lineup fix. Nobody really has the answer. Um, just yet very clearly because it's still been an issue. In terms of everything else, it, honestly, a lot of times it's, it's game to game. To game. Um, it seems like it's been more just kind of missing shots or, or um, making some poor mistakes, getting a little frantic, a, a word that Rick Carlisle has repeated a lot. 
um, rushing the offense, maybe not not getting what they're so accustomed to getting. Now, the Miami game, that was definitely an exception. That was a lot of what Miami was doing. They were sagging back in that they sent four back um, um, in, uh, in order to stop the Pacers from getting off in transition. It's something that they really want to do and their top two team in doing. They threw out a zone in there. They were switching everything. Uh, so that, that specific game two games ago, that was more so what the Heat were doing. It seems like every game, fourth quarter, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to zone the Pacers. Uh, that seems to be like a very common occurrence. Yeah, you saw Golden State try and do it again last night. Again, Scott Agnes with us here from the Fieldhouse Files. Scott, you've obviously been at you know, probably virtually every home game for the Pacers over the past decade or so. How would you compare last night Steph Curry circus pregame within the game to, you know, either other Curry games, LeBron, Kobe, uh, you know, kind of when all these stars come to Indy? Yeah, it's easily the the best vibe or atmosphere, certainly, um, uh, of each game each year, for sure, uh, in that there's a crowd. The, the biggest telltale point comes an hour before the game when there are hundreds of fans on the end zone waiting to watch a guy shoot. If you want to think of it in simplistic terms, it sounds silly, right? But then you realize that's that's all, in some ways worth more than the ticket to the game itself to see a guy that's a master of his craft, the best to ever do it. How long is he out party. there for? Uh, 20 minutes, I want to say. Okay. Is it mostly like little kids watching? All age ranges. It's it's a lot of parents and kids, though, for sure. But, I mean, you got a a kid with a poster board that's in high school that's, you know, Steph's my favorite player. You got a four-year-old saying it's my birthday, and then... And then you got a dad kind of in awe. So mm-hmm. it, it ranges, which is really cool. Um, but this is easily by far uh, the most, I think, of any team that that you know the Pacers might face with probably LeBron's team being second. It, it's just a sizable thing. The, the age ranges and the fact that, you know, during um, pregame intros, like Steph received a lot of ovation than even some of the Pacers, it sounded like. And and you get it. Steph's a generational player. He's a player that a lot of these kids can see themselves in. And, and so, he's likable. Yeah, that's what makes it special. That too, yeah. Yeah, I'm There's sick of the mouthpiece, though. I'm There's sick of the mouthpiece on defense. He's got to do something with the mouthpiece, Scott. He's got to either decide to put it, <laughs> st- keep it in, or like I'm sick of the mouth. He's carrying it half the time he's playing defense. He loves to chomp on, on the foul line, too. Yeah. Yes, that's what it is. It's 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 halfway in and then chewing around while he gets set for the game the ball to be put back in play. Scott, one of the guys for the Pacers that that I was noticing last night and I'd kind of forgotten about. And I do think and I have no idea. I want your thought on this, Scott Agnes, Fieldhouse Files on the Palo Sugars hotline. I want your thought on is this a guy that the Pacers are just holding on to to then flip? Or are they hoping to eventually get minutes for? Because I do think that there might be a place for what he can bring to the table that they're missing. Daniel Tice, where do things stand? What's going on there? Yeah, so he's still rehabbing from the minor knee surgery that he had, uh, basically like a scope, essentially, to decrease swelling. And it just wasn't getting any better. Um in terms of where he's at in his future, I think it's still probably most likely that he has flipped um, 
just considering the Pacers situation and where he's at in his career. He really wants to win. He's towards the back end closer than the front end. And so, I mean, for example, I think he would really like to go back to Boston and and try to help contribute to that team. The Celtics have been without their their centers the last several games. They're out with injuries. I think that I don't even know if Boston is interested or has uh, the, the means to swing that. But I just think it's probably more likely than not that he has moved um, than, than, you know, plays out his contract here. Scott, on that front, Jake and I were talking about this earlier. Again, Scott Agnes from Fieldhouse Files with the Seattle and the Payless Lickers Hotline. Isaiah Jackson, out of the rotation in the last couple of games. If you look at his minutes even before that, they, they shrunk a little bit. I get that Miami and Golden State are smaller teams, so that probably plays into some of that. Um, so I guess two questions. Do you think this is more of a permanent thing? And then secondly, don't you get the feeling that like it's important to give Jackson consistent minutes no matter what? considering the elephant in the room of if and when you trade Miles Turner, you just explained Daniel Tice's situation. Goga does not look like a starting center at all. You would want to see what you have in Isaiah Jackson before you get to that point where Turner is no longer here. Yeah, that's that's been one of the quietly revealing things, I'd say, over the last couple of games is Isaiah Jackson's not played. Jalen Smith has played. It's been off the bench, and it's been maybe a dozen minutes. No Terry Taylor, no Goga, uh, and you could include James Johnson. But basically, they, they have, they've gone small um, and haven't played much of their bigs whatsoever. And so, yeah, I think a lot of it is matchup things. I also think those guys, both talking about Smith and Jackson, both missed a game or two with an injury, so maybe they're not exactly 100% as well. Um, And to your last point, though, I think there might be something to that in that you do need to get Jackson out there uh, at least every single game. It it depends. you got to rethink, what are we doing here? Don't lose sight of the end game, ultimately. And, you know, if this goes on for a couple weeks, then then I think maybe it's a little bit troubling. If it's another game and that's it, all right, I can understand a blip on the radar – you know, maybe I think it was a sore knee. Maybe that wasn't a hundred percent. So Temp looking out there, but um, yeah, that that's something we're definitely following closely into this next week. The more I watch him, the more the obvious comes into play. Scott, it's really hard to keep T.J. McConnell off the floor, isn't it? It is because they're they're getting off to those poor start starts. They need someone to reorganize. They need a jolt of energy off the bench. Maybe someone to muck it up a little bit and, and meaning, you know, steal that inbounds pass. It's unbelievable how often he does that. <laughs> I think it's amazing because, what, he's like seven years into his career. The book should be out on him. Totally. And yet he's still able to get teams oftentimes once a game at least. Scott, last one for me, and I've obviously thrown a lot of Benedict Mathering questions at you over the past few months. You know, I think what stood out to me again last night about him, two things. One is, you know, his willingness to learn. You know, he's struggling with that jumper. I think you had mentioned to Rick Carlisle or vice versa that, you know, he had watched some film and, and just clearly shot it better last night. The other thing that probably stands out the most and, and is why I feel like stardom could be there for him is I feel like he's played his best in the biggest moments this season. Whether it was the Lakers game with his comments about LeBron and backing that up. Again, last night against the defending champs. You know, he had, what, 32, I think it was, at Brooklyn earlier in the year. He did that at Arizona. Kind of in the bigger games, he really stepped up. But to do that as a rookie in the NBA, I think it's pretty rare. 
um, and, and was something that, again, stood out to me last night about him. Yeah, to not let the moment be, get too big for him um, is it, telling, and I'm not surprised by this because that's actually what, what Tommy Lloyd was saying. I talked to him after that first game, and he was like, no, 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 he's built for this. Those big moments never phase him. He wants the ball. Um, one of the great draft stories at the draft was I was asking them about the Pacers interview process. And I was like, Pacers are asking you to take the, or Pacers are asking you to drop a final play, right? Because I had learned that's what they were doing in their meeting. One of many things. He was like, yeah. I go, Who's, who took the final shot, Ben? He said, oh, I drew it up for me. Now, comparatively, I asked Keegan Murray the same thing. He goes, oh, I drew it up for somebody else. Now, it's not a poor reflection on anyone, but I think it's telling. It's, he's confident in himself, and he believes in himself that I want that final shot. And so uh, I thought that was really impressive. And then something we've heard Rick repeat several times, he did again last night, and it's how much Ben wants to be coached, How probably more than any other player on this roster right now. Like, he, he wants to get yelled at. He wants to be um, taught and, and learned because he – you know, his mindset out there is, I'm not the best yet, so I need to get there. Here, How can I get there? Yeah. And that's just so incredible for such a young guy. Again, it's, I said this to Jake a few minutes ago. It's that rare combination, Scott, of having a cockiness, a swagger, a confidence about you, but yet still being humble enough to want to learn. And I feel like he's got that combination, which I don't think is something you typically see. And, that, and so far, he's taken seemingly everything in stride, including still coming off the bench. So it, it remains impressive what he's been able to accomplish. And, and also, by the way, two other things of note for this day, by the way, which it being December 15th, this is the day where more trade talks, I think, pick up. And also, it marks one year since Herb Simon called us, a few of us into a room, remember, last year and had that long talk. That was just one year ago today. Was that nice little team? Was that the? Was that? That's where that came out of. Yes. Could, yeah. could you uh, explain a little bit more why trade talks pick up on the fifteenth? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So any player that signed in the off season is ineligible to be traded um, for it. And that's six, six about six months time. And so now that those players are eligible um, to be traded, now that opens a, a much larger pot of players, so to speak, of, of guys that could be intru- included in trades and, and those sort of things. And so usually it's still a little bit early. Things wouldn't get started till January, typically for most significant trades. But that's why, remember at the start of the season, if people were talking about, you know, well, something happened with Miles or he came off a good first couple of games, well, something happens like, no, no, no. Historically, nothing really happens till January, maybe at least mid-December because of this date. Thursday, February 9th, that is the NBA trade deadline. So less than two months away from that. Again, Scott Agnes, Fieldhouse Files on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Scott, thank you, man. You bet. Thanks, guys.